0: This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com missionlog mission log.
1: Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 218, Time's Arrow, and Time's Arrow Part 2.
2: Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion.
0: And I'm Ken Ray, with a question. Can you help out a podcaster? Help out? What's wrong? I am not ready for today's show, John. Oh, that is unfortunate. I require large amounts of whiskey as a liniment. Because... because podcasting? Sure, yeah, let's go with that. Okay,
2: this week, Time's Arrow, the one where they find Data's head in a cave in San Francisco,
0: and Guinan hangs out with Mark Twain in San Francisco. Then, don't touch that listening device, it's Time's Other Arrow, or Time's Arrow 2, the one where Data loses his head in a cave in San Francisco, and Mark Twain hangs out on the Enterprise.
2: All right, I've got trivia coming up in a moment, but first, a word from, about, and for Blue Apron, a better way to cook.
0: You ever thought about how much money you spend on food that is seriously, I don't want to say substandard, um, <laughs> maybe, not, maybe not a foodie's idea of food, like um, 12 bucks on a hamburger, some places, mm-hmm. you know, chain places. Um, I mean, they're good, but what's weird is we'll do that without thinking, then balk at spending less money on better food.
2: This is where Blue Apron comes in. For less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. You won't have too little and you won't accidentally buy too much, so less waste and less money spent.
0: And Blue Apron makes you a better cook even when you're not using uh, their food. At least it did for me. Because, you know, you're not just warming up food prepared by someone else. I mean, you are using their ingredients, but you're following a recipe. And I, for me, that actually rubbed off. I found myself doing things that I'd learned in the Blue Apron recipes and other stuff that I was cooking on the nights that I wasn't using the Blue Apron food.
2: Very cool. And speaking of the recipes, while well, you will use some of the same ingredients again, you can choose from a variety of new recipes each week or let Blue Apron's team pick for you. So recipes are not repeated within a year, so you won't be eating the same thing week after week after week.
0: So here is what we would like for you to do. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash mission You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. Start today at blueapron.com slash mission log.
2: And that way you can put all that delicious food into your mouth, whether your mouth is on your face or on your forehead. (laughs) Blue Apron, a better way to cook. And a huge thanks, huge thanks to Blue Apron for sponsoring this week's show.
0: (laughs) So the question, if you were a time traveling thing that craved, you know, good sustenance, what would you do and then the mm-hmm. answer, of course, is I, I, I call Blue Apron. Or actually go to the website yeah, and, yeah. You know, use the thing and do the thing.
2: Well, I, I, like, putting, yeah, I like putting food into my mouth hole. So,
0: <laughs> you know. So much. Although I do like throwing food at your forehead. i got to be honest. Mm-hmm. I, that's, it, it's happened. Yeah, yeah, it has a time or two. <laughs> hey, uh, tell us what you like to do with your food. Uh, you know, within reason. <laughs> uh, there are lots of ways to get in touch with us. Um, Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you want to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And if those comments include trivia... John may use those. Quick, get them in right now. Oh, sorry, you just missed it. No more trivia for Times Arrow. But, you know, coming up, other trivia, other times this week. Uh, now, are you going to do a trivia for Times Arrow uh, 1 or Times Arrow 2?
2: Well, we were going to do everything together.
0: Oh, you madcap.
2: Yeah, crazy. Yeah, go for I, it. And only really one minor difference here. So part one was written by Joe Minoski with the teleplay credit going to Joe Minoski and Michael Piller. Part two was also by Joe Minoski, but Jerry Taylor wrote the script. Um, interesting little thing about script changes, one abandoned story point that I think would have been interesting, there was much more business, just much more going on in the the 1890s, and the crew would have been around for longer, and Picard would have ended up running a cafe, <laughs> because why not, yeah, sure. right?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Now, Les Landau directed both parts, and originally Rick Berman wanted the time travel sequences to take place in the 1990s, and then it became the 1960s, and then the 1930s before settling on the 1890s. Now, a little context about production here that I think is important. Part one was produced in the late spring of 1992. The announcement for Deep Space Nine had already been made for a premiere in January of 1993. Now, what was to be a one-part Next Gen episode became a two-parter in order to assuage any fears that all the attention on Deep Space Nine meant that Next Generation was over. It definitely was not over. But there were some big staff changes over the summer between season five and season six. Jerry Taylor became a co-executive producer of Next Gen. Peter Allen Fields became co-producer on Deep Space Nine, along with our old friend Iris Stephen Bear. David Livingston would become supervising producer of both series, while Dan Curry would oversee effects for both now, Ronald D. Moore would stay with Next Gen for a little while longer before bouncing over to the new show, and Joe Minoski just wanted to take some time off. It'll be a little later in season six before we see his name again. There are some deleted scenes. Uh, those would be on the Blu-ray. You have Dr. Crusher working more with the doctor in the San Francisco infirmary. We also have a patient talking about the doctor to Jordy and Deanna, and it's not just that that doctor is limited by 19th century medicine. What we learn in these deleted scenes is that this doctor is also kind of an unfeeling jerk.
0: See, here's what's interesting, though. Um, I did not see those deleted scenes, and I could totally read that subtext off Beverly
2: really that he's just an unfeeling jerk I don't know if
0: it was that he was an unfeeling jerk or my guess is he also treated nurses like they you know weren't worth anything
2: oh yeah because when
0: he came over and said something to her there was just something in her body language that was like oh she hates him yeah and and what he
2: said was not hey you're new here
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah good point that all right we have
2: some historical notes about Mark Twain the writer Mark Twain nom de plume for Samuel Clemens He was born in 1835 in Missouri and is most famous for his novels The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. As a journalist, uh, he wrote literary criticism, social commentary, travel articles, and left behind a vast treasure of short stories and letters. Now, he probably was not in San Francisco in 1893. More likely, he was in Europe and he would later come back to New York a few times to sort out his financial issues at the time. But Twain is as good as any historical figure to encounter the crew of the Enterprise. He was a strong supporter of science, women's rights, keen critic of injustice and supporter of progressive politics. He was born with Halley's Comet and passed away 75 years later with the return of Halley's Comet in 1910. Incidentally, that pocket watch would likely have been given to him by his wife, Olivia, whom he married in 1870. In this episode, there are a handful of biographical details about Twain and a direct reference to his story, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. Now, Jack London, real name John Cheney, he was born in San Francisco in 1876, which means he would have been 17 in 1893. He worked at a cannery until 1892, then he went to sea in 1893. Returning from Japan in late 1893, he found the U.S. in the grip of economic depression, and he took up work in a jute mill and in a power plant. Of course, he went on to become a writer of some renown. He died at the age of 40. Now, we have a reference to Alfred Russell Wallace, who was indeed a well-known scientist of the day, primarily an evolutionary scientist who was a contemporary of Charles Darwin when it came to publishing his findings. He also believed in some crazy stuff, too, so not a bad foil for Mark Twain to talk about. So what else was happening in 1893 well i'm glad you asked well grover cleveland was president there was an awesome world's fair happening in chicago along with one of the most prolific serial killers in american history in san francisco the san andreas fault line was detected that might be handy knowledge a few years later and uh, let's see in this episode we have some props being reused from power play those power beacons that were used for the transporter are used here for phase shifting Uh, The newspaper with the announcement about Guinan's literary reception does not have an article about her. I actually did a freeze frame on it. The text is actually about property and housing regulations, but it's all vague nonsense. And in fact, it is the same dummy text used in the newspaper props in City on the Edge of Forever, in Star Trek 4, and just about anywhere you see a newspaper in Star Trek. And, uh, yeah, that ad on the back is for a young girl needed to ride diving horses at the state fair nice so we do have some locations used uh in part one olvera street and pico house which are some of the oldest areas of los angeles um, I, I went there not too long ago and what's cool you can also see olvera street well in many movies and tv shows but uh very notably in charlie chaplin's the kid and a lot of those buildings just look exactly the same from back then as they do in star trek as they do now um, the New York Street backlot at Paramount was finished over the summer of 1992. So some shots for part two were actually filmed there. And uh, that backlot portion is still there today. Kind of a rarity in an era when backlots are used less often in favor of partial sets and CGI. So uh, this episode, well, part two has two emmy wins uh costume design and hair styling it was also nominated in the sound editing category and um i'm a little surprised it didn't win anything for makeup or effects because i kept thinking man that is a really good model of data's head (laughs) um it, it helps that he's an android so the makeup is already pretty thick but it is still good and creepy And across these two episodes, a lot of guest stars, so we'll just kind of go through them as quickly as we can here. The two Davidians that we see in human form are played by Mary Stein and Arvo Catagisto and also Eugenie Bondurant. So Eugenie played the Davidian in part one, and then Mary Stein played that role in part two. Eugenie started her career as a model and was primarily a background player. Speaking of background, Arvo was two, and we have seen him in many episodes thus far. Eugenia will be back for another uncredited turn on Next Gen. We have Michael Aaron as Jack London, just a handful of TV and film credits to his name, but he moved behind the camera and also focuses on media services for nonprofits. We'll see Ken Thorley as one of the poker players. We saw him before as Mott the Barber in the episode Inson Row. We have Jack Murdoch as the old 49er. His TV career starts in the early 70s, and many guest roles led to a recurring role on Operation Petticoat, then appearances on Barney Miller, Charlie's Angels, Night Court, and Hill Street Blues. He had a role in Big Top Pee Wee, and he was Grandpa in a long-running series of commercials for Grandpa's discount stores. Some of his best work, by the way. Yes, yeah. yes. Mark Alimo as Frederick LaRocque, the card shark. Now, we have seen Mark three times before in Next Gen in Lonely Among Us, The Neutral Zone, and then as a Cardassian, Gull Maset in The Wounded. This is the last time we'll see him on Next Gen, but don't worry, there's plenty more of him to follow. Pamela Koch as Mrs. Carmichael. Now, Pamela's career on TV really got going in the 80s. Appearances on Hotel, Dynasty, The Golden Girls, Highway to Heaven, and even a recurring role on Saved by the Bell. Later, she was on Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, ER, a recurring role on King of Queens. We will see her one more time in a different role on Next Gen. We have James Gleason as the irritating Dr. Apollinaire. Uh, Primarily, he's a stage actor, but you've also seen him in Revenge of the Nerds 4, Nerds in Love, and in guest roles on Modern Family, ER, and Dream On. He was a recurring character on the days and nights of molly dodd now william boyette is the policeman who gets punched by Riker. we saw him before as a policeman in the big goodbye he was also in the sci-fi classic forbidden planet lots of tv appearances for him let's see tj hooker playing a cop uh, simon and simon sometimes playing a cop he was on emergency and he was a regular on adam 12 playing a cop Hmm. and uh, he was on dragnet a few times sometimes playing a cop sort of a typecast after a while it sounds a little like. bit a little bit but a lot of it <laughs> and really that's what every actor wants is a lot of work
0: yeah and plus you know i mean if there's one thing that i imagine hollywood is always casting for cops it's like cops and doctors mm-hmm. that's it cops yep. and doctors yeah <laughs> right. maybe a judge maybe maybe a jury member mm-hmm.
2: yeah Alexander Enberg plays the reporter. He is Jerry Taylor's son, and he'll be back one more time in Next Gen, then again in Voyager with a recurring role. And finally, Jerry Harden as Samuel Clemens. Wow. Now, we saw him a long time ago in Season 1 in When the Bow Breaks, and he'll be back for a guest appearance on Voyager. He's one of those actors who works all the time. He was Deep Throat on The X-Files. He has portrayed LBJ. He had recurring roles on L.A. Law, Who's the Boss, Melrose Place, and Dr. Quinn. Now, he had not played Mark Twain before taking on this role, but he took to it so well that he embarked on a one-man show called Mark Twain, A Man and His World. Soon after shooting this for Next Gen, it was developed and originally directed by Les Landau. And
0: he performed
2: that role on and off for about
0: 20 years. I would live. I would absolutely live to see Jerry Harden as Mark Twain Mm -hmm. and Hal Holbrook as Mark Twain tonight. (laughs) Yep. Just see him go at it on stage. (laughs) That would be, be, you know, I know I'm a nerd, Mm -hmm. but sometimes, sometimes I surprise even myself. The fear of death
1: follows from the fear of life. A man who lives fully is prepared to die at any time. Mark Twain.
2: Prologue. Hey, this looks familiar. The Enterprise has been called back to Earth after the discovery of some weird artifacts in a cave near Starfleet HQ. There's a watch, a gun, some glasses, all from the 19th century. There's also triolic waves which were not from Earth in either the 19th or 24th century. Oh, and there's Data's disembodied head just laying around. Way to bury the lead of the story, Starfleet guy. Act 1. So there's Data, examining Data's head like it's no big thing. Everyone else seems to have a problem with this. Riker is frustrated. Geordi is worried at the prospect of losing his friend. Guinan is just kind of contemplative. The head has been sitting around on Earth for 500 years, dead as dead can be. It definitely is Data's head, but here he is now examining it and well aware that this could indicate some wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff in which he dies in the past, which is probably coming up in Data's future. There is one clue about what's going on. A fossilized cell that comes only from Davidia 2, which is where we'll be heading shortly. And another, the aliens they're dealing with could be shapeshifters, allowing them to pass for human if they were on Earth. The planet is well empty. No signs of life, but data is picking up temporal distortion and, you guessed it, triolic waves. A landing party, not consisting of data, is assembled to go investigate. What they find is a bunch of empty chambers in a cave, more of those waves and nothing else, except what Deanna consents. Humans, dozens of them, all around. Act 2. There are people there, but not in phase. Like they're in another phase, or the next phase, anyways. It's a variance of a tiny amount, point zero zero four seconds, and Data is the only one who can tune an instrument to the right frequency to join them. He beams down, and Geordie opens up the subspace field. Data's voice transmits over the communicator, and in a moment he is describing what he sees humanoid life forms with mouths in their heads, which are consuming tiny energy fragments emanating from a container of some sort. An Ophidian is there as well, a snake looking creature which seems a key part of the time distortion. A few seconds later, Data's voice fades, there's a crash, and he is gone. But Data wakes up finding himself on a cobblestone street just being missed by a horse-drawn carriage. Act 3. Data asks two passers-by about the Ophidian. They have no idea what he's asking and laugh off the confused Frenchman. When Data picks up a newspaper, he realizes he's been transported to San Francisco, August 1893. The next person he encounters is a decrepit homeless man, a 49er, looking for a handout. Nearby at a hotel, Data inquires about a room with the bellboy. He's friendly, but with no money, Data can't get a room. Until he overhears there's a poker game in the next room. The only thing he has of value is his communicator, partly made of gold. It's enough to buy in. And using the skills he picked up on the Enterprise, Data wipes out the other players. It's enough to get a choice room, top service, and he asks the bellboy to pick up some supplies for him. Outside in an alleyway, the old 49er is approached by a stoic-looking, well-dressed couple, a man and a woman carrying a medical bag, and a serpent-headed cane. A beam of light shoots from the bag, sucking the life out of the old man, leaving his gray corpse behind. Act 4. Data's gone, which leaves the crew to debate what to do next. It's imperative that they figure out what was going on since the aliens may have been a threat to Earth in the past, which would directly correlate with a threat now. Droidea will rig up some kind of phase discriminator. Man, where was he a couple of weeks ago when they needed a phase? Oh, all oh, right. right. Picard swings by 10 forward to find Guinan in heavy cocktail experimentation mode. It's not usually her place to say so, but she tells Picard he needs to go on this away mission. Really needs him to. They may never meet if he doesn't. In his hotel room, Data is rigging up some very complex machinery out of bits and pieces, stone knives and bearskins, and an anvil. It's much too technical for the bellboy to understand, so he just thinks it's a car engine. He leaves, and Data picks up the newspaper on his desk and honestly looks surprised, as he can be, to see an article about a literary reception hosted by Guinan. Act 5 At an elegant home, the unmistakable visage and voice of Mark Twain, Sam Clemens, to those who know him, he's entertaining the crowd, including Guinan, with talk of Earth's ancient history and the proposal that it's very likely humanity is just a blip on the geological clock, making us very insignificant to the story of the universe. Data shows up and has to cleverly maneuver his way around the doorman in order to introduce himself to Guinan. She has no idea who he is. They haven't actually met yet. But when Future Boy mentions that he's from the Starship Enterprise in the 24th century, her interest is piqued. So is the interest of Sam Clemens, who has been eavesdropping on the whole conversation. Back in the 24th century, Geordi is working on shifting those phases. Beacons are set up in the cave, and before it can be tested out, Picard himself beams down. He joins the away team, sending Worf back up to the Enterprise. As the phase shifts, those glowing aliens data described become visible. They are ingesting the bioenergy being fed to them. It's the imprint of life, Diana says, an echo of the humans who died in terror. Just then, more of the Davidians step through the vortex to recharge the energy-sucking contraption. As they return to the vortex, one is carrying a serpent-headed staff. This time it's alive, and our crew members follow them through into the unknown. Part 2 Prologue Sam Clemens is talking a young reporter's ear off about time travel, both real and fictional. It is his intention to uncover and stop whatever plot the time travelers have cooked up since it must be a danger to the 19th century. Meanwhile, those creepy aliens who just barely pass for human pass by Data and Clemens on a busy San Francisco street. Act 1. The away team are right at home in the 19th century, though Dr. Crusher has a tricorder hidden in her dress. She and Riker are in a morgue examining bodies of cholera victims. But they didn't die from a virus. They died because the electrochemical energy in their nervous system was drained. Those Davidians have definitely been here. Oh, man, this is getting heavy. Back in their lovely brownstone, Picard, Dr. Crusher, Riker, Deanna, and Geordie are discussing ways to track down data and the aliens when they are interrupted by their landlord, Mrs. Carmichael, demanding payment of the rent. They don't have it. But you see, they're a, they're a theater troupe. Yeah, yeah, that's the ticket. And they performed in theaters here uh, at London, uh, all over the world. And they even made some money to, to sold out houses. Yeah, yeah, that's what happened. So if she'll just wait a bit. They'll get her her rent tomorrow. Sam Clemens has met that eager bellboy at the Hotel Brian and talks his way into seeing Data's room. While he noses around the equipment, the bellboy is talking about traveling the world and writing about his adventures. Advice from Mr. Clemens that he should write his own story rather than entrust anyone else to do the job. The bellboy, young Jack London, runs off with renewed enthusiasm. When Clemens hears someone approaching, he grabs a piece of Data's machinery and hides in the closet the perfect place to overhear Data and Guinan conspire about getting access to the mine in the Presidio where this all began. Act 2. With Clemens discovered, he starts to rant about uncovering their plot, which Guinan insists there is none. No amount of bobbing and weaving with false explanations can convince Clemens that they aren't invaders from another century, and he leaves to spread the story. In the hospital, Picard has set up a beacon to detect the triolic waves given off by the Davidians, and Dr. Crusher attends to the cholera patients when in walk those aloof aliens. That sets off the beacons, which also sets off Data's machinery in his hotel room, leading him to know exactly where they are. Confronting the aliens doesn't do much good. A phaser shot from Riker only slightly irritates one Davidian, but they both dematerialize to get out of there. They did leave behind that serpent-headed cane, though. In all the ruckus, the real police arrive, and Riker has no choice but to knock out one of the policemen in order to make an escape. And with expert timing, Data arrives with a carriage. Act 3. Back in the brownstone, Geordi activates the Ophidian cane by firing a phaser tuned with the same frequency of triolic waves. Sure enough, it comes to life and starts opening up tiny space-time distortions. Just then, Mrs. Carmichael comes back to collect the rent, but they are ready for her this time, forcing her to jump in and read a little of Titania from A Midsummer Night's Dream. She's terrible, but the flattery from the crew is all she needs to forget about the rent, at least for another moment. Guinan is waiting for Data in his room at the hotel to let him know that she has arranged to get them into the mine at the Presidio. When Picard walks in, it's a strange moment. She doesn't know him yet but he assures her that she will. Sam Clemens has turned up again, nosing into the reporter's story about all the strange happenings in town. He's putting two and two together and heads off to the Presidio, promising he'll bring details to the reporter later. Geordie surmises that the cave therein acts as a sort of lens, focusing the time distortions to right where they are. Even if the technology is incompatible with their own, the crew have to try to get back so they can destroy the cave on Davidia 2. All a great idea, one that is interrupted by Sam Clemens crashing their party and holding the away team at gunpoint. Before he can strong-arm them into coming back to the police, the not-very-human aliens show up again to retrieve the Ophidian cane. In the struggle for it, a time portal opens up, but Data loses his head. Literally. This is the point in the pass where Data's head separates from his body. One of the Davidians escapes through the portal, and Picard orders his away team to follow him. Guinan is injured, and Picard stays behind with her. Then Sam Clemens jumps through the portal himself. Act 4. On the other side, it's Davidia too, and it's the 24th century. Data's body is there since he was the one holding the cane. Clemens is also there and there's little choice but to beam them all back to the Enterprise. Stuck in the 19th century are Picard and Guinan. She's hurt, but will be all right. And she realizes that Picard stayed behind to help her, an act of friendship she won't even be able to mention when they meet again in 500 years. In the 24th century, it's Guinan and Riker, and this time it's Riker asking Guinan for guidance, anything at all, to help him decide what to do. She can't, She won't. She could screw up history, everyone's history by meddling. No one should know too much about their own destiny. Deanna has taken it upon herself to show Sam Clemens around the enterprise and acclimate him to the twenty fourth century way of life. There are no cigars, but there's also no poverty. So you know, a trade off. Jordy is hard at work attaching the five hundred year old head of data's that was found in the cave to the body they beamed back aboard. It's not working. But Clemens does come into the lab to collect his pocket watch, and he gently lets the unconscious data know that he misjudged him. In the 19th century, Picard tries to communicate with the Davidian who was left behind during the last time the portal opened. He states that he is compelled to stop them, since they are devouring humans. She's injured, but she warns Picard that any use of their weapons on the other side of the portal in the 24th century will only amplify the time distortion, thus destroying their world in the 19th century. And with that, she phases out of existence. Act 5. Riker is anxious, ready to go back to the 19th century to rescue Picard. Worf's more concerned about destroying the alien site on Davidia too, even if that means leaving Picard behind. Deanna chimes in that he's right. Riker gives the order to power up the photon torpedoes. Geordi is still hard at work on Data, but he just won't boot up, even though everything seems in place. A little digging in Data's noggin reveals an iron filing that definitely should not be there. Cut to 1893, where Picard picks up Data's head and starts tapping away a message on his circuitry. Worf, meanwhile, is getting those photon torpedoes ready and Geordi is having a little more success at getting Data up and running again. When he powers up, it's only a few words. Alien. Torpedoes. Phasing. The message is from Picard, and Data relays that any plan to fire upon the Davidians should be stopped. Geordi needs to recalibrate the weapons so that they phase shift enough to actually destroy the Davidians in their own timeline. Meanwhile, Riker plans to return to the 19th century to rescue Picard, but Dr. Crusher warns that their technology can only open the rift temporarily. At best, only one person can go through. Sam Clemens volunteers. After all, he belongs in the 19th century, and Picard belongs here in the 24th. Clemens says his thanks and goodbyes. A moment later, he runs into the cave where Guinan and Picard are. The portal put him down to the wrong location, which ate up some time for him to get there. It's Picard's turn now and not a moment too soon since the long wait has forced Riker to assume Clemens didn't make it. The photon torpedo launch will proceed in five minutes. Now it's time for Picard to say his goodbyes to Clemens and Guinan before he activates the Ophidian and transports back to his own time. Photon torpedoes are exploding around him out of phase, and the captain is safely beamed back aboard the Enterprise. As the Enterprise heads out, Picard visits his old, old friend Guinan, Everyone is where they should be, and Sam Clemens makes sure Guinan is rescued from the cave just before he leaves his watch on the floor, to be discovered in 500 more years. The end.
0: Leaves his watch on the floor next to the android head. Yeah, <laughs> ignore
2: the android head. <laughs> Nobody noticed just, in
0: 18... Yeah, yeah. Hasn't 1893, mm-hmm. was it? Yep, 1893. So I'm thinking, uh, bringing the Enterprise back to Earth in the very beginning totally has to be like an admiral move.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, which is usually not a good thing, right?
0: Right, yeah, yeah exactly, because yeah. I'm I'm, think, I'm thinking Admiral 1 says, oh, do you think we should tell Commander Data that we found his head in the cave? And Admiral 2 <laughs> says, eh, let's surprise him. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. I would think at some point they'd be like, so why are we here? And then they even get there and the scientist is like, ooh, we found this watch. Yeah, yeah right. And this cave right. is like a really old cave and Oh, there's your head.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It seems, yeah. They have a flair for the dramatic. for they
0: sure. They do indeed. They do, as you said earlier, way to bury the lead. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that. We're 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 working on being cool in Starfleet this week. So, uh, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know who else has a flair for the dramatic, and that would be Picard. Because he asked Data about the head. And he right. says, no, Laura's, Laura's head is type L. My yeah. head is type R. Type Picard, R. His eyes just, like, <laughs> pop out of his head. Uh, type R. Right. And I'm like, wow, you are really invested in knowing this thing that is totally irrelevant to you.
0: <laughs> you know? Yeah. I have to guess there were, like, 20 different reads of that line. Mm-hmm. Just give it to me big. Just give it to me big. we got to roll on. Type R. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> we have a nice
2: callback to Data describing how he misses Tasha Yar. And Indiana has a photographic memory because she just rattles off that little monologue about how Data misses people.
0: That was cute. I have a question, though. Was that about Tasha or was that about Tasha's sister? Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. Because he. Yeah. Yeah. He mentions. Um, I believe it was about Tasha's sister. I can't remember her name nor the episode, but for some reason I have it in my head that that was about her, not about Tasha.
2: Right, right. The episode was Legacy, and I, I nice. just I think that uh, Data's got a thing for the Yars, either way.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, that's true, yes.
2: So um, I, I do like that, so Geordi tells Guinan, they found Data's head a mile beneath San Francisco. And where was, where was Picard at that point to say, a mile? because you know unless a mile means something very different in the 24th century than it does now
0: well they've switched to metric
2: probably okay so it's a metric mile
0: he wouldn't really understand what a mile was anymore okay so
2: it's like 200 feet
0: yeah it could be yeah yeah. (laughs) i mean really though the the point of emphasis is actually on the 500 years ago not how Mm -hmm. far down it was i assume that you know Well, both of those could have been exaggerations, actually, because I don't think either one was exact. (laughs) Certainly, the 500 years was closer than the mile. I'll grant you that. Right. Okay. Um, Here's what I thought was odd. Uh, The big reveal in this episode is exactly what happened to Roe and Jordy two episodes ago. (laughs) <laughs> right, right. Jordy's like, so they're out of phase, and 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 I think Warp says, w- would point zero zero four seconds even do that? And Jordy's like, yeah, you know, it could be a year, could be point zero zero four seconds. It is seriously exactly what happened to me last. No, really, when you guys nearly killed the Romulans and got killed by the Romulans, and that- no, really, when we had my funeral. No, uh, you know the wild jazz yeah. party we had.
2: <laughs> oh, that yeah, we remember the party. Was that your funeral? Were you there, Jordy? Were you there? <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah, no, I remember you were there. That wasn't your funeral. You, I don't even remember what happened. Yeah, didn't they even mention synchron waves in both episodes? Yeah, I believe they did. I yeah, believe they did. Okay. Yeah, but it's like totally new this week. This is very Tos. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's like I have no idea if anything like this has ever happened before ever.
2: Well, the other example of that, there's so much hand-wringing in this episode about saving Picard. Mm-hmm. And a couple of weeks ago, we were ready to write off Geordi and Ensign Rowe in about five minutes. Yes. You know, did we do everything we could? Okay, too bad. We're moving on.
0: Okay. <laughs> you know? here's, here's what I think we're finding out. Either you and I dreamed the next phase, mm-hmm. or Geordi dreamed the next phase.
2: Oh, maybe. Maybe that's <laughs> it. seriously,
0: yeah, there's no—, right. there's no togetherness on that at all. Not at all.
2: Hey, here's a question. Why was the old 49er scared of the aliens? Had he seen them do this before?
0: That's a good question. Yeah, because he was really terrified, and all they actually did was, like, hold up a bag at him.
2: Mm-hmm. Unless, I mean, he just realizes that medical technology in the 19th century is terrible, and he's <laughs> like, no, you're doing it this without anesthetic. Yeah.
0: It could be that. Or it could also be that uh, the people of San Francisco were already the closed-off wretches that I knew them to be in the late 20th and early 21st century. <laughs> like, anybody right. comes up to you and, like, Good. says or does anything to you, and you're like, no. Yeah, you're like, no, get away. It's not really mm-hmm. fear now as much as it is just, ew. Right. <laughs> right. I will right. say, though, I um, I personally thought that the, uh, the death of the 49ers was particularly tragic because he is seriously like the most helpful non-player character anybody has ever come across ever. Mm. I remember oh, you, totally. you you've played like, you know, video games at least, you know, back in the day, right? No, you don't. Yeah, a so little much bit, now, yeah. but Yeah. Yeah, how you like, you know, you see like an arrow over somebody's head and so you walk over to them and they give mm-hmm. you like six paragraphs of stuff mm-hmm. that you have to read because it's telling you about how to play the game. Right? He's right. exactly that. Like, you know, he walks up to Data and says, can, can you help me? And Data says no. And he says, okay, well, let me tell you everything about my life and everything about the city. <laughs> right. right. And that didn't even cost yeah. Data a quarter, which is, you know, yeah. pretty, pretty helpful.
2: Pretty awesome, yeah. Um, let's see, Worf, I, I think he's exaggerating a little bit or he doesn't understand something when he says about that cave, our remains would have turned to dust long ago. Well, so it's been 500 years, mm-hmm. which is not 10,000 years, and um, and they're in a cave. They're in yeah. a cave, and, and there's a robot head, and there's a watch, and, um, you know, people are made of bones and, you know, things that, that leave traces, maybe okay. even clothes,
0: things like that. I, I think his whole point was they may be going off to their death.
2: Yeah. Oh, sure.
0: Yeah. Sure. Although yeah. I, think, I think actually Worf would have been smiling at that point. He so, might
2: have, yeah. If we had, oh, be... go back
0: to the next phase, which, of course, is an episode that you and I made up. Right. We, we do know that, uh, that Worf would have been all excited about dying uh, back yeah. then because he would have done it in the line of duty. Um, yeah. I have a question. And mm-hmm. it's—so uh, we, as the viewer, have been let in on the whole thing about, you know, how special whatever Guinan says is to Picard, right? Mm-hmm and Mm -hmm. vice versa I don't know that everybody else is as hip to that and I'm wondering why they didn't question him just a tiny bit more when he's like I I have reason to believe my presence on this mission is of paramount importance and (laughs) I just wanted Riker to say why and then Picard could say (laughs) my bartender told me at that point he'd be like yeah you know normally I would say the captain shouldn't come but really if this is how you're going to treat your safety fine whatever dude just do it just come on in
2: you know, and, and Picard knows it sounds crazy because he has never volunteered that information, not, not even as far back as yesterday's Enterprise. That is true. He's just like, no, no, I really, this is important to me, so just don't ask any more questions.
0: And again, yeah. we, we also have, we have Roe Laren's prominence on that ship is thanks to Guinan. But again, mm-hmm. you're not going to hear uh, Picard tell Riker, no, no, seriously, Guinan vouched for her, so it's okay. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. I'm not saying she's not a valuable character. I'm just saying.
2: No, but just imagine if, like, she had been an astrologer or something. (laughs) And then, you know. (laughs) Right. Then you really have to question his judgment. She is
0: a very important character. If anybody else on the Enterprise had any idea how important a character she was, they'd be transferring off. Right.
2: (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. All right. Uh, I have to ask, where did all the 19th century clothes come from? Because they are fabulous, you know, but they all jump through, and they're in their uniforms, and then we start the second episode, and it's like they've been there for a week, maybe more, who knows? We know how Data won his money. Yes. because he's an android and he can outsmart any card shark and win a bunch of money. But these these misfits, <laughs> they they have no idea what they're doing, and suddenly they've got a wardrobe change every five minutes, like a like a Diana Ross concert.
0: You it, know, it is possible though that they also found a poker game someplace. Because don't forget, even though none of them would be as good as Data necessarily, they can mm-hmm. play in concert,
2: right? Oh, oh, wait, and you know, and Jordy can cheat.
0: Jordy Kenji, so, that's true. Although yeah, I don't think they yeah. would have let him sit there with the visor on. But even if Jordy's out of the game, you've still got you know Deanna, Beverly, and Riker have all played together mm, as well. Mm-hmm. So they may have signs and you know things like that. I'm yeah, willing to let yeah, that pass, mostly because we have no idea how long they've been there. You got to figure it's been at least a week because um, that woman from the box of Lucky Charms shows up and she's like, <laughs> uh, "We've talked about this before. Rents due on Wednesday, and it's Thursday now." It was really good to see, um, you know, the extras from Darby O'Gill and the Little People once again represented on Star Trek. Just once, mm-hmm. just once, just once. I would like an Irishman who's like, who's not, you know, top of the morning to ye, And let me have <laughs> right. whatever, you know. Just, yeah. Uh,
2: well, I, we, we had Chief O'Brien. You know, we wouldn't have true. enough of him.
0: Okay. But, so maybe one, maybe just one other time then. That's right. One more. Actually, I forgot yeah. about him. Any extra, though, yeah, mm-hmm. is going to be, you know, swinging a shillelagh as long as that's not dirty. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And thanks to Mrs. Carmichael, Mm -hmm. we we
2: have our third now unique pronunciation of Picard in this episode. Because you have her calling him Picard, and you have, as most everybody else says, Picard, sort of an Americanization of that. And then Riker suddenly is very continental, calling him Picard. Really? You know, he's, yeah, yeah. Riker is the one who drops that on us. Uh, Like, he's been suddenly studying some French. He's like, what, what do we do about Captain Picard? I totally yeah. missed that part. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's in there. Kind of weird. Um, I, I love what we do here to expand the relationship between Guinan and Picard. It, it is really nice because we've mentioned many times before and um, even uh, uh, Guinan is one who says, "Like, oh, I have this thing for bald men and a guy did something that, that saved me long ago. And, and really, so we're kind of, at least retconning if i may use that word what it is about their life together is finally revealed in this episode i thought that was really cool now i wondered did she really need to not tell riker what to do i mean even just saying like hey don't blow up that place until we get picard back might might be okay because You know, there are other things that have already been revealed, like telling Picard, you need to go on this mission. Right. So that's a reveal about future information. So even just a little bit of a reveal saying, like, hey, don't fire the photon torpedoes
0: right away. Yeah, here's the thing, though. That's her past. Mm -hmm. She can't mess with anybody's future. And this is now her future as well. She doesn't know what happens to Picard past this point. She only knows what happened 500 years ago. Now of course you set up the usual you set up the usual time travel paradox of you know it wouldn't have happened if she hadn't been there to make it happen but then she wouldn't be there to make it happen if it hadn't happened. It didn't have it out, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. that whole thing. But Picard could have died at that point and while that would have been sad for her that doesn't screw up any timeline. Mhm. Mm-hmm. I mean except for Rasmussen's. It's <laughs> <laughs> right? Right? Exactly. I mean, it doesn't screw up anybody's timeline yeah. who's you know from our timeline.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, either way, it's it's academic because the photon torpedoes don't seem to just power up right away. Power up the photons, Mr. Worf, and let me know when they're ready. And the answer always is now. They, they are ready right now. It's like literally all the time they are ready. It's like getting in your car and turning on the headlights because you could be in the middle of the space with nothing going on. And if a, an enemy ship shows up, then Picard just looks behind him and says, get the photons ready, and they're ready. Like, you could fire them right away. Nice to see there's another Bullion on the ship. He's clearly headed to the barbershop with, yeah, with great speed. Um, I did wonder when they were heading back through the portal the second time around, why didn't somebody just say, hey, we should grab Data's head and take it with us? But I understand, you know, maybe another time paradox, maybe a problem there. Um, But then you wouldn't have had Picard... With the opportunity to tap a message into data's head. Um, But I did ask myself, how would Picard know that in the 19th century that Riker in the 24th century was ordering a photon torpedo array to be shot at Davidia, too?
0: Yeah, well, remember in the next phase when, you know, that episode that we made up, where you're like, "Jordy should have been like, hey, Data, it's me, Jordy. How's it going? Listen, maybe you're right. (laughs) Picard could have actually just, like, written a note and stuffed it in Data's mouth. Mm, Yeah, right. And it would have been a bit (laughs) like uh, Silence of the Lambs. And then, of course, the problem Mm -hmm. is, they like, as soon as they found the head, they would have just opened his mouth and said, oh, well, now we know exactly what to do when we, in the second half of... uh, (laughs) Time Zero Part Two could have actually just been like a travel log of San Francisco in the late 1800s, I suppose, because they would have had plenty of time because they would have known exactly what to do and do it. But yeah, it's weird they had to be so cryptic about the whole thing because, I mean, heck, he could have scratched something in the stone right there. But then again, then the problem is Starfleet finds that and like, hey, don't even call the Enterprise. We know exactly what to do. (laughs) (laughs)
2: And then they would have pulled that letter out of, you know, Data's head. It would have said, on the day you come back, Libyan terrorists are waiting to shoot you.
0: (laughs) No, no, no. I can't know about that, John. I can't know about that.
2: No. Oh, okay, okay. Hey, here's a quick tip, by the way. If you're Mark Twain or really anybody from the 19th century Mm -hmm. and uh, you smoke a lot of cigars and you drink a lot of brandy and you lead a hard life, Go to sickbay on the Enterprise and get a physical before you go back to the 19th century. Oh,
0: please. She's just going to tell him to smoke fewer cigars and drink less brandy. You think Mark Twain wants that? (laughs) Come on, dude. Seriously. I do have one question, though. So he's on Uh the Enterprise for like mm, a day, maybe Mm -hmm. an hour. Maybe we get the big nice moment between um, Guinan and Picard. Why do we not have a scene with Mark Twain and Guinan? Oh, yeah. That actually would have been yeah. kind of a rewarding thing, I think. I mean, to like have him mm-hmm. see her and know that you know, their theoretical conversation wasn't theoretical and maybe drive a bit more home about their argument. Mm-hmm. And plus, as you point out, drinks a lot of brandy. I mean, if I'm, if I'm Deanna, even if I don't know that he's met Guynen, I'm like, I'm taking this guy to the bar because I'm just... This is a lot. <laughs> <laughs>
1: The two most powerful warriors are patience and time. Leo Tolstoy.
0: John, I know you love speaking in song lyric, and you know I love speaking in song lyric. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite lines from They Might Be Giants. Uh, sure as you can't steer a train, you can't change your fate. hmm I think fate is, like, from our uh, aspect, uh, fairly debatable. Um, But the seeming ease with which Data accepts his demise is absolutely fascinating to me. Now, he's in an interesting position as far as fate is concerned. He is literally holding his head in his hands. Yeah. Okay. And I don't mean, like, not the one that's still attached to his neck, or still attached to his body, rather, but the one that's, you know, that he found on a cave floor. Right. Right. Um, The first one or two viewings for this week... um, I thought of this entirely as a death and dying episode, though I actually got off that on the final viewing and found some other interesting stuff to me. Um, but but initially, I'm still fascinated by the way that everyone deals uh, with death or with the impending demise, with the knowledge of their mortality, if you will. Yeah. Um, Riker's got both anger and denial down. Uh, Picard's going to do whatever he can to stop it, even though he knows logically that there is nothing he can do to stop it. And Jordy, I think, has my favorite reaction at all, of, of all of them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of like, and, and I don't know if you've done this, but like your friend's going through a hard time and it really sort of, you know, you want to talk to them about it, mm-hmm. but not because you want to be helpful to them, but because you really want to talk to somebody about what's going on, right? <laughs> right, right. So Jordy says, wow, do you want to talk about it? And Data says, not particularly. Do you want to talk about it? And Jordy's like, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I found, yeah. I mean, I found, I, I just found all of that kind of fascinating. I, initially, I mean, and maybe it's, well, I don't want to say hang up, but I will. Maybe it's my own hang up on mortality. Mm-hmm. But I mean, when I first watched it, all I could see was, oh, it, it's about, it's about accepting, it's about accepting mortality or accepting your fate in a way. Although I'm not sure that's... um I'm not sure that's where I ended up on the episode, but that is, that's certainly where I started.
2: Well, I, I think that's a heavy focus in part one. I, I think yeah. it's less so the focus in part two. Part two, we just <laughs> have to have the fun adventure and wrap it up, you know?
0: I know. Well, except it was act three, I guess, when his head pops off, and then all of a sudden we're like, oh, yeah, Data could have died here. Right, and right. And dead. Yeah. Huh.
2: <laughs> but But I think we're still resigned to the idea that by that point, it's like, okay, well, how are they going to wrap this up? It's not about just data's dead because we assume data is coming back. But, I, you know, I, I think the, the contemplation was there in the first episode. or Yeah, the first episode and yeah. throughout that first episode. Um, but by the time we get to the second, it is not as much. I mean, I, I think it's a fascinating thing that data Even Data says life was terminated 500 years ago. So everybody on board, including Data himself, they were referring to Data as living and dying. Like, this is no longer a question about Data being alive. That's just sort of Mm -hmm. how we all accept who he is. Um, and, And I think it's really fascinating that Data kind of finds comfort in the idea that his existence is finite. So otherwise it would remind him that he's artificial and that all his friends will die. So it gives him, as he says it, a sense of completion. Which is well, it's an interesting way to look at it. It's kind of the pragmatic, unfeeling way, if data has no feelings, to say that right. to say that there is an end goal, there is an end point, just sort of like completing a mission. He knows, you know, when he gets to that point, that is the end of that mission. But all of this is wrapped up in emotional language. Mm-hmm. Even if data doesn't totally understand other people's reactions, well, there there has to be a part of data that understands those reactions because he's been through it before. When he was on the other side, when Tasha Yar was taken away, you know, the, these are things that he has experience with.
0: Heck, so. two weeks ago, mm-hmm. again, two <laughs> weeks ago, he had this. His best friend. Quote, died, end quote, as did Ensign Rowe. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, everybody was walking around thinking about this stuff then. Except what's weird is you actually got more, and maybe it's because you got more contemplation of it in this episode, maybe because it was both a very real thing and also a theoretical.
2: Mm, yeah.
0: Right? Yeah. I mean, because Jordy and Rowe are just gone. Yeah. Now granted, most of our A plot in that episode is actually watching Jordy and Roe try to get back to being alive. Right. I mean, maybe we would have had a very different episode. I couldn't help thinking of um thinking back on that episode especially. And I don't it, it's been coming back to me more and more since we watched The Next <laughs> Phase. Um, The episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm -hmm. Spoilers, by the way. This show's like over 10 years old. I've watched it twice now all the way through, so don't start with me. But I'm telling you right now, if you don't want to know something that happens in, I think, season five. I'm giving you 30, not even 30 seconds. I'm giving you three. Okay, time's up. (laughs) Buffy's mom just drops dead one day. She comes home and her mom has died. I think she had a stroke or something. And she's just dead and the rest of that episode and i think maybe even into the next episode like you'll you'll see things happen where buffy's imagining or dreaming or thinking about either all the ways she could have saved or all the things she could have done or at one point i think the scene opens back up and buffy just walks in and there's her mom again Mm -hmm. and and that to me felt like a really honestly yes i know we're talking about a show about vampire slayers but it struck me as a real like a real examination of of just how jarring that whole thing can be. right? Um, Which they sort of miss that, I think, in the next phase. And here we get a very, not clinical, but dispassionate look at that. Mm -hmm. And I know there are people who feel the same way. I know there are people walking around like that right now, actual people who have not found their heads in a cave, thinking, yeah, you know, when that happens, I'll be okay with it. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, man. I'm not there yet. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. But it's interesting, though, that this is kind of a recurrent theme in science fiction is whenever you're pre- presented with a story where somebody, say, artificially extends their life, um, usually the moral meaning message at the end of that story is that mm-hmm. that's a crazy thing to do <laughs> because yeah. all you do is see your friends around you die and there is no sense of completion. The prospect of forever is terrifying when it actually means forever, uh, when, when yeah. there is no end in sight. I, I, you know, not that you and I will solve that right away, but it, it is a sort of a literary theme that you see a lot whenever that's something that's contemplated.
0: It's, very much, a t- it's a very much a Star Trek theme as well. I think we decided at the end of TOS that one of the big themes that ran all the way through that series, life prolongation is going to get you. Right. I mean, that's what happened right. with Mary. I can't remember which other ones that that happened with, but I want to say there were three or four things where it's like, oh, yes, I'm going to live forever. Yeah. And, and, and Kirk was like, nope, nope, <laughs> nope. Or, or, or nature was just like, nah, that's not going to happen. Right. We're going to have to kill you. Right. Uh, you know, go back to Mary. Yeah.
2: Well, and, and, you know, also. Don't, don't see, go
0: back to Mary. Just trust us. Yeah, don't, right. don't go back to Mary.
2: <laughs> but also see any number of, you know, science fiction books or any number of uh, episodes of The Twilight Zone. Or uh, it, it seems like when things like that come up. I mean you mentioned Buffy the Vampire Slayer. In vampire literature, that's often a thing that's really terrifying. To those who live forever is that they actually have to live forever. And that's a terrifying prospect for for many of them. Um, So let's talk a little bit about that uh, Deanna and Mark Twain scene, them walking through the halls of the Enterprise. I think it's so great in so many ways. Now, it's totally one of those on the nose scenes, Mm -hmm. but it tells us a lot. Um, I, I love that. He thanks her for helping a bitter old man open his eyes and see that the future turned out pretty well. He says that to the group. And and we've dipped into this a little bit before. It's Star Trek dropping the, and I say this with a little C, not a big C, Star Trek dropping the, the little C conservative point of view in favor of new ideas, new ways of thinking. And, you know, Mark Twain was probably the right guy to see that world. Could have been H.G. Wells or or Jules Verne or maybe a handful of other 19th century progressive writers, too. But but he's kind of the right guy. And this is the way that Star Trek every now and then gets to sort of reach through the TV and grab the audience and say, see, here are the things that we value. <laughs> you know, this is the kind of future that we like. Mm-hmm. And this is the kind of stuff we're trying to leave behind. And, yeah, you might have to leave behind a hand rolled Cuban cigar. But there are huge upsides to everybody getting on board with this idea of what a, a better future could be. So I kind of like seeing that. It, it, it's nice every now and then to have uh, a moment like that that is just telling the audience here are Star Trek's values and go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah, it's not nearly as it's not nearly as over the top, but it's reminiscent of um, I guess it's Act Four of the Omega Glory, mm, where mm-hmm. where it was just Kirk sitting there going, "Look, this is how things are supposed to work." Right. Uh, kind of the same thing that happens in that um, in that Turbo Left. It's right. interesting. It did not even occur to me that it could be somebody else. Honestly, from a literary standpoint, it probably should have been H.G. Wells, but mm. he's not he's not recognizable and he's not as easy easy to caricature sure sure i mean you put mark twain on screen and even if you didn't have that voice which i feel like we all sort of accept is what he sounded like i'm not sure why we do that i don't know if there are actually recordings like on a gramophone or something you know but. what
2: it, it's funny you bring that up so I, I looked into this because i'm a mark twain fan and um okay mark twain was given an early wax cylinder recording system by edison Hmm. and he tried it out just to take notes and he hated it so he broke them all (laughs) okay (laughs) awesome now now here's the thing though there was an actor uh william gillette who was a boy when uh mark twain was older and kind of known and he lived nearby Uh, where Sam Clemens lived. So he visited very often, and he got to know Sam Clemens very well. And as a boy, and later as an adult, as an actor, he would do imitations of famous people, one of those famous people being Mark Twain, who he'd known something for like 30 years. So Mm. later on in his career, William Gillette was recorded doing his imitation of Mark Twain. And I have to say, it's not that far off. Okay, It's it's a little bit slower, a little bit lower, yeah, but it's really not far off at all. So um, that that exists out there on the Internet <laughs> if you want to give it a
0: listen. I, I think it's fascinating. I'm sorry for being cynical, though, but, I mean, we only have his word to go on. Well, no, I mean, it, it's like, it, I do a great Moses. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> it, it,
2: historically, people who knew Mark Twain and, and okay. who were around said that, that this was as dead on as, as anybody ever okay. got. So it it's historically accepted that, that this was as close to Mark Twain's voice as you can find. So all right. I, I definitely well, that make, that recommend it. It honestly makes me out.
0: feel a tiny bit better because I've always wondered why we all think we know what Mark Twain sounds like. Mm-hmm. Well because no. we all do. Yeah. And that's yeah. Yeah, that's about it. Mm-hmm. So I I also like the conversation with Deanna and uh and Clemens. Um Though I personally got more out of the talk between Clemens and Guinan, mm. I think because, as you say, the, the conversation between um, Deanna and Clemens is very, it's very on the nose. Mm-hmm. There's very little interpretation there. There's, you know, here's what. <laughs> Clemens <laughs> going, okay, here's what. Right? Um, I really like the conversation between Clemens and Guinan, though, especially Clemens' reaction to finding out um, that he's actually right. Yeah. That, you know, humans are not alone. But let's start with, you know, the Guinan part first, because it's, I think, kind of, it's a little bit more on the nose than the other. Yeah. Uh, Clemens argues uh, that um, if there are other races, then there's nothing to humanity, basically, since it diminishes humanity's significance. And Guinan argues, or, you know, says that one might argue that a diamond shines just as bright even in a pile of diamonds. Mm-hmm. And and that's Idic. Yeah, right? I mean... You find out that you're not the only game in town, and, you know, to Guinan's point of view, that's great. But Mm -hmm. the game gets more interesting with more players. Um, It's kind of the Ubuntu idea, in a way. Hmm. Um, uh, I I found a couple of definitions of Ubuntu because I've heard it before, but I wanted to check it out. And there are three definitions if you count the computer language. (laughs) But its name, um, or the operating system, I guess it is, not the language. Language is Linux. Uh, Ubuntu is the operating system, whatever. Um, its name comes from an ancient word out of uh, Africa, and I found a few different things. It said, like, like, Bhutan, I believe, was one, but then I also saw Zulu was another, mm-hmm. and so I don't know exactly where it's from. The one thing everybody does agree on is that it's an ancient word out of the African continent. Roughly translated, it means, or it's said to mean, um, humanity to others, though I've also heard it being translated as, I am because you are. Mm-hmm. And then another translation I found online, uh, I am what I am because of who we all are. Hmm. And, you know, there are those among us who seem sort of upset Mm. that another another race, excuse me, or another religion or another philosophy might be accepted or even deemed equal to one to which they subscribe. But, I mean, on the other hand, there's itic. Here's what I think. Oh, that's interesting. Here's what I think. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Look what we can make now, you know, which is kind of a... Kind of a neat idea. Now, where it gets really interesting to me, actually, is so Clemens is like, ah, people are nothing. There are all these there's things all over the place and races and planets and all this stuff. And then he finds out, yeah, that's true. And he's like, oh, get, get away. He wants to hit him with a cane if he had one. <laughs> Maybe burn them with his cigar, which he does carry around with him all the time. It's all plots and concerns. And what are you trying to do to me? I do love the fact, though, that his curiosity does outweigh his fear, and he does jump through the portal. Although I will say, he was lucky that he wasn't cleft in twain.
2: Oh, 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 oh! oh well played, well played, Ken Ray. Oh, thank you.
0: That was that was eight paragraphs just to get to that joke.
2: Yeah, I see what you did there.
0: <laughs> no, but I mean, I mean, it really, it really is kind of interesting. He's like, you know, and certainly we all have this, right? Um, I, well, no, I shouldn't say we all have this a lot of us have this we have ideas of how we think things ought to be until we come face to face with that right and then all of a sudden it's like oh well here's what I believed yesterday but that's ugly so I'm gonna hit it with a stick on the other hand you I mean the better part of humanity is when you think wow I totally hate those people I totally hate those oh are you one of those people yeah well I like you I never realized that maybe yeah. it's not so bad after all.
2: You know, it's interesting, because I I, I totally agree with your uh, interpretation, your look at that scene between Guinan and Twain. And I wish then going back to what you said before, that there had been another scene with them on the Enterprise or or somewhere. We have to obviously build the drama and build the conflict. Mm -hmm. But if anybody could have talked Twain down, it would have been Guinan. You know, before we even got to the point of him pulling a gun on all of them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if anybody could have talked sense into him, it would have been Guinan because they, they met, they bonded on this idea of what the universe is really like and and what humanity is really like and uh, whether or not we're significant and special. So. Uh.
0: Yeah, we have yeah. To, we have to stop doing this. But honestly, now I wish that scene did exist because yeah. yes, it's yeah. great It's great that Deanna puts a button on it for him in the holodeck. Mm. But he comes in there and he's cantankerous and he's angry and he's like, oh, you got that blue fella chained up someplace <laughs> and, and the poor and the whole nine. Right. And she tells him all this stuff. It would have been really been great, though, to see a an actual meeting of the minds. Yeah. In 10 forward between Guinan and Clemens at that point. Let's yeah. let, let's forget the what do I do, Guinan, I'm not going to tell you scene with Riker. We take that right. minute back and we, you know, because it, 500 years have passed. She knows more now than she knew 500 years ago, but she still believed what she believed 500 years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There is a federation now. There was no federation then. Then one assumes that she was just, you know, hopping from planet to planet, hoping to blend in. Right. Right. And it, so it's... Um, yeah, well, but, I mean, you can't begrudge the fact, hey, I'm glad they had that first conversation because it gave me a lot to think about this episode anyway.
2: Yeah. So I have to say this. The aliens, man, the Davidians, are super creepy. I mean, they are really, <laughs> really weird, and they are literally sucking the life out of humans, um, though seemingly only the ones who are near death anyway. That, that seemed to be a thing. That, that well, that's,
0: that's their cover,
2: yeah, yeah, they're just getting the ones who are about to die anyway. Um yeah. not not saying that that's you know morally more acceptable. Although, you know, there's kind of a, a, a weird thing to be said about that. Um, but when we get to the end, there's really no time for conversation on this one. We just need to blow them up. We really just need to kill them. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I don't know if I can tie that back to the decisions made in Iborg, borg um, whether or <laughs> not there is a, a moral imperative to do what was done there or not. Uh, Picard tried to have a conversation with the one who was injured. And it just seemed to come down to, I'm going to blow you up. And she was like, okay, but you blow yourself up when you do it. Bye.
0: Well, except Hugh showed a willingness to change. I mean, Picard was talking to the Davidian, and he's like, look, listen, we're from the 24th century. We should be able to find something. And she says, no, really, nothing is as tasty as you guys. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So then he's like, okay, well, I tried. And in fairness, he really did try. I wouldn't say he necessarily tried as hard as he could have. Yeah. But he also didn't have much time. I mean, he ended up back on the in the cave, and then there was like, you know, 10 seconds before it was going to explode, and they beamed him out. Yeah. yeah. Part yep. three of Time Zero would have been Captain's Log. Still got Geordi working on some good energy for the Dividians because <laughs> much as I want to blow them up, I'm pretty sure that might be the wrong thing to do.
1: Time flies like an arrow. Fruit flies like a banana. Not Groucho Marx, even though everyone thinks so.
0: We shot a podcast in the air. It fell to earth. Time Zero's, John. Actually, Time Zero Part One and Time Zero Part Two. I didn't even ask you about that. Is it Time Zero and Time Zero Two? Or did they actually say the Part Two thing? Yeah, it's Time
2: Zero and Time Zero Part Two.
0: Part Two? Yeah. So not like Unification and Unification Two.
2: Oh, no, no. Yeah, it's part two, I believe. Yeah.
0: or was it best of One of them, I remember, was not part two. It was just this and this two. Right. As if it were a sequel in a way. Right, right. Might have been best of both worlds. Oh, gosh, if only there were some resources that we could check, <laughs> like our own past podcasts But no, past is behind no. us and we're moving forward. We're moving forward and deciding whether the meanings, morals, and messages, or the messages, morals, and meanings, for that matter, of uh, Time Zero and Time Zero Part Deux hold up. And whether they, uh, the whole episode stands the test of time, uh, as always, we start with that part. Uh, does the episode uh, hold up, sir, And in and, and your, and your opinion?
2: Those other shows, they, they feel like 500 years ago. That's why we don't remember <laughs> them. And by the way, <laughs> Ken, I'm a little shocked that in your uh, song lyric quoting, see, mm-hmm. I, I thought I was going to go a different direction. I thought it was going to be a uh, snake head eating the head at the opposite side.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So, there right. was
2: a lot of snake imagery. In, uh, in these two episodes. But uh, so let, let's let see how we should think about Time's Arrow and Time's Arrow Part 2. Um, y- you know how we will sometimes refer to iMUD as the episode where we took a lot of heat for not just enjoying the fun of a show? Um, mm-hmm. Because there were things in iMUD that we kind of couldn't get past. And as you like to point out, our job is to pick it apart. Our job is to, to really dive deep and to what it's trying to say to us well so this is an episode of next gen that is absolutely purely fun it's not especially deep though there are some deep ideas and some deep themes woven in there but look i'm a sucker for time travel stories mm-hmm. i love these characters i love mark twain as i mentioned before it's kind of like they made this episode for me um and then you put on top of that, you have this equally creepy, scary, alien plot, and then the fun, adventurous romp with plenty of humor. Mm-hmm. It just seems like everything in here is firing exactly the way it should. Um, it's impressive from a production point of view. You've got a lot of outdoor, uh, some location and some uh, studio backlot shooting, which just looks great. Terrific costumes. Um it's just a ball, and you can't help but think, well, sure, Mark Twain is on the Enterprise in the 24th century, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Okay. Um, so, I think, yes, as a production, it holds up really nicely. There's really no point in the two parts that anything slows down or feels boring or feels out of place. You just sort of sit there and accept everything that's coming to you. So, um, I really like this episode. I, I think it's a blast, even if isn't particularly deep Mm -hmm. but that's cool i think that's fine i I think it does what star trek does well which is as we've always said as gene roddenberry said we're going to entertain you we're going to make you laugh and we'll slip in a heavy idea or two and and maybe with this one those those heavy ideas are sort of easy to swallow because it is such a fun episode so now how about you in terms of the production holding up
0: well, I, mean, I think the big difference between an episode like this or episodes like this and an episode like iMud, I'm or specifically iMud, I'm um, mm-hmm. there was stuff in iMud I'm that was offensive. Yeah. I mean, right, I, can, right. I can have fun as long as you're not, like, you know, really upsetting me at the same time. Mm-hmm. But between the whole, you're going to work for work's sake until you, the, the day you die, you know, which is sort of one of the messages that I picked up from iMud, I'm mm-hmm. and um, then, of course, the sexism, the crazy sexism in <laughs> right, that episode— right. Uh, The crazy 1960s, you know, um, battle-axe housewife sexism. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nothing offensive in this episode, I don't think, unless you're Irish, in which case (laughs) you you might be bothered by Mrs. Carmichael. Right. Um, We did have one moment that nearly broke the whole show down for me in the same way that... um, in the next phase, when Roe touches her uh, the panel that she uses aboard the Enterprise, mm-hmm. uh, Data was looking at the back of Data's own head earlier in the show. Mm-hmm. So I don't see how he didn't see the iron filling or filing. Excuse me, that Jordy oh, found. Oh yeah, right. Because it's big enough for the camera to pick up. Which you know, I guess it needs to be if that's the way you're going to write it. Yeah. But I would honestly rather have found a tech the tech explanation. Mm-hmm. And and there was one other thing that did bother me. I believe there were two, like, down-to-the-last-minute things happening here. Like, you know, blow up yeah. that cave. Well, it's going to take five minutes to, uh, to to fire up the phasers. All right, well, then blow it up in five minutes. And then they get down to, like, like, one minute. And it's like, okay, any sign of the captain? No. Okay, go ahead and fire up the photons again, or still, yeah. or whatever. It's yeah. like, okay, one minute. And then, you know, he gets there. It's like, oh, we only have, like, five seconds to beam him up, which, you know, usually only takes about one. But Okay, Um, (laughs) that part kind of bothered me that, you know, the data came back online one minute before the world is basically going to be destroyed. Um, That's getting a little tiresome. Now, all that said, I did find a certain amount of depth in this episode, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Thinking about death is not one of my favorite things, and yet I tend to do it quite a bit. So being able to play with that in the first episode was great, and the conversation between uh, Guinan and and Clemens really was great to me as well. And then, mm-hmm. um, as cartoonish as his portrayal is, I cannot help loving the Mark Twain Sam Clemens presentation in this episode. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I got a couple of problems with it, but I don't have any problems with this episode that that stop me from from enjoying the episode i mean again we go back to is it the is it the first episode you want to show somebody not if you want to try to impress them with how deep it is but if you want to you know if you want to try to you know have a little fun with it because i mean i don't think you even have to have seen an episode of star trek before okay so there's that guy and there's that guy's head okay that's trippy if i don't know who either of them are and these two characters know each other but they're telling me they know each other so I don't even have to know that from before. I mean, it's, it, yeah. it's, it's not a bad, even a self-contained episode. Of course, it's much more fun that we actually know those characters. And so seeing them in a very different setting is, yeah, I, I mean, I'd say it holds up. It's not, it's not the best that Star Trek has to offer, but, but it's fun. And it's, you know, it's a decent way to kick off a new season.
2: So uh, with that said, if it's not deep, do we still have messages in there?
0: Mm-hmm. I, I think so. What about you?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting to me that Data is so resigned with the discovery of his disembodied head uh, about his own death. It has occurred. It will occur. Hasn't he seen a Christmas Carol? Like, he's literally on board with the guy who does the one man show of a Christmas Carol. <laughs> That uh, your future is not written. You know, fate is not finite. You can't actually change it.
0: Hold on a second, though. That's not true. I mean, that's why I said earlier that having a discussion about fate for you and me is very different than for him because he is literally no, standing there holding his head.
2: Of course. Like of a, course. Second,
0: a second version of the head that's on his shoulders.
2: Sure. Wait, And he's lucky that he's got that second version of a head to stick on there. Things, things worked out okay for Dana. In the end is what I'm saying he may still live an infinite number of years as he uh suggests earlier in the episode. There is a line that Mark Twain has when he volunteers himself to go back in time to save Picard. There's risk in everything, the point is it's the right choice. So Mark Twain without having seen an episode of Star Trek <laughs> knows the central message of Star Trek or at least one of the central messages of Star Trek which is pretty great. You know, we we talk about sometimes the right thing is not the easy thing to do. And Mark Twain knows that. And and he tells everybody on board that he picked up that message from this episode. So I I think that's a pretty good one, too. Uh, Anything else that I'm missing here?
0: Well, I would just go back to, again, the conversation between Guinan and um, Guinan and Clemens. The whole Mm edict slash Ubuntu, you know, the existence of another doesn't diminish me. It actually, you know, raises us both um right that's hardly the message of the whole episode but it's a message that i found gratifying and uh, maybe inspiring even we'll have to see um and then of course you know it's always fun to talk about death <clears throat>
2: <laughs> yeah yeah with that, Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Find out more at Roddenberry.com. And for more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM as trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. Next week,
0: Realm of Fear.
1: some of the music for mission log provided by warp11 online at warp11.com and from the album messages by key theory free to download at k i theory.com it is time to say goodbye but i think goodbyes are sad and i would much rather say hello hello to a new adventure ernie harwell and transmission.